As we've just been hearing from Professor Stifter, one notable claim to fame of RIA 23N10, or the Book of Ballycommon, is the essential role that it, in conjunction with Edgerton 88 in the British Library, played in Rudolf Thorneisen's reconstruction of the contents of the lost codex known as Keen Dromaschnachter. Work by Seamus McMahuna, <coughs> Kim McCone, and Nora White on the stemata of texts believed to have belonged to the Keen indicates that 23N10 and Edgerton 88 share an exemplar that stands fairly late in the transmission of the material. Nevertheless, these two manuscripts have been indispensable in enabling us to conceive of the Keen as a collection. Tornison himself held varying views concerning the age of the Keen, and differences of opinion on this question have continued down to the present. So far as I'm aware, however, no one would dissent from Tornison's pronouncement that Keen Dramaschnachter was, as he put it, older than the oldest surviving manuscript of similar content, older, that is, than Ljarnahire. Since the content to which Thorneisen referred comprises mainly stories, this has given the keen an enduring, often a tantalizing, interest for students of medieval Irish narrative. The present talk is inspired by another of Thorneisen's observations concerning the keen, this being the sentence with which he concluded the account of the manuscript in his Heldensaga. He said, one may legitimately doubt that a monk assembled this collection, which consists in great part of tales of fairies and elves. Rather, it gives the impression that the collector was a secular poet and storyteller. Needless to say, Subsequent scholarship has done much to problematize, if not to rule out of court, Tournaisen's dichotomy between monastic authors and secular storytellers. It has become more and more evident that the literature that has come down to us, even when it purports to relate to the pre-Christian past, is the creation of members of an ecclesiastically trained elite, and the extent which their writings in fact derive from pre-existing tradition cannot be taken for granted. At the same time, even if, perhaps indeed especially if, the individual responsible for the keen was a cleric, it remains interesting that the compilation which he put together consists, in Tornheisen's phrase, in great part of tales of fairies and elves. Indeed, Keen Dromeshnachte contains stories of visits to the Shiva or to fantastic lands beyond the sea, of supernatural beings impregnating mortal women, of revenants and avatars, of mysterious knowledge obtained from still more mysterious sources. What place would such marvels have had in the mental world of a monastic intellectual? My own reflections on this question derive much of their orientation from the results of a study mentioned by David Stifter in his talk, 
which I undertook several years ago, on the apparent interrelationships of many of the texts believed to have formed part of Keen Romashnachta. I there argued that a significant number of these texts can be assigned to one or another of three groups. The northern group, relating to the Ulster cycle and the origins of Loch Foyle, the Midland group, relating to the Tara kingship, and a derivative mixed group, which combined elements from the first two groups to form new narratives with a northern setting. Since the texts in the mixed group exhibit a consistent approach to their materials, it seems reasonable to attribute that group to a single author or perhaps to a number of individuals working in close collaboration. And since by its very nature, the mixed group presupposes access to the other two groups, it moreover appears likely that its author or authors can be held responsible for the compiling of the Keen as a whole. If this interpretation is correct, even if only in part, then the varied contents of the Keen have the potential to illuminate one another. And since these contents are largely concerned with the native supernatural, there is the further potential for increased understanding of this contentious and enigmatic area. In what follows, I shall look at some of what the Keen dossier has to offer along these lines, in the hope that some insights may be afforded by such an exercise. The multiple and sometimes apparently contradictory localizations of supernatural places in medieval Irish tales can seem chaotic and open-ended. This has led Tomás O'Cahasy, for instance, to observe that the Irish conception of the other world, as it is expressed in the literature, is extraordinarily complex. While Marie-Louise Sjöstedt spoke of the early Irish as inhabiting what she called a world which is indeed our world, but pregnant with many other worlds. Within this complexity, however, it is possible to recognize four main ideas. That the habitations of the supernatural people are within Shida or hollow hills, that they are underwater, that they are across the sea, and that they have no specifiable location, but can be found when one has lost one's way, usually in storm, mist, or darkness. All of these conceptions are to be found in the keen Romashnekta stories. Mongon sends a young man to the dwellers in various Shide in Shkeo Mongon. The Loch Foyle colloquy texts speak of women keeping treasures within a spring and of men dwelling beneath the sea. Imre Bran describes a paradisal realm beyond the ocean while Cuchulain voyages across the sea to the land of the Folvore in Forfes Fervolge, and in Tugid Baliamongon, a preternatural feasting hall is found by a company who have gone astray in the course of a violent hailstorm. Sometimes, too, these localizations can be combined. 
as when the Ulith come upon a strange house by night after a heavy snowfall in Compert con Cullen, and wake next morning to find that the house has disappeared and there beside the sheath of Newgrange. Another instance, which has attracted considerable attention, is afforded by Echtra Honle. Here, an immortal woman speaks of her home as being the sheath of Bawadach, but her country is reached at the end of the story by crossing the sea. <coughs> Echtra Honle is a fascinating little tale, rich out of all proportion to its brevity, and it has attracted differing interpretations over the years. In my own writings on the subject, I have subscribed to the view that the mysterious woman who invites Conle to share her beatific existence is to be understood as one of the people of the Shiva of indigenous tradition. These beings are, however, taken by the author to be unfallen descendants of Adam, and the other world which they inhabit is identified with the Judeo-Christian paradise. Kim McCone has challenged this reading to the extent that it entails a rehabilitation of aspects of the pagan supernatural, while recognizing that Echtrakonne draws upon, as he puts it, <clears throat> a number of traditional motifs associated with sovereignty in the other world. He stresses that the author is to be regarded, and I quote again, not as a benign ecumenist, but as a determined proselytizer, who intended the immortal woman as a symbol of the church. I do not wish here to rehearse this debate in detail. As McCone has also observed, ultimately, there is probably the potential for a fair amount of common ground between our two positions. Rather, I would like to bring forward some comparanda, the relevance of which to these questions has not yet, to my knowledge, been taken fully into account. It is of additional interest that this material, like Echtrakondle, is attributed to Keen Dromschnechter. As was already noted by O'Curry, passages claiming to, to give the testimony of the Keen are included in some of the manuscripts of Liorgawola Aaron. Some of these relating, as he put it, to the ancient legend of the antediluvian occupation of Erin by the Lady Banava. For present purposes, I am interested in two such passages, which appear close together in the copies of the text in the Book of Ballymote and in the Great Book of Lecan, the two manuscripts of the recension that has been designated C by Mark Scowcroft, and also in the Book of Fermoy, the manuscript of recension A that is most closely related to recension C. A further copy of the second passage is found in RIA manuscript D43, a manuscript of recension B, which includes excerpts from a text of recension A that is said to have been taken 
from Liao Nahira. I have argued that LU's copy of Recension A was the work of Hand A or of Hand M, hence almost certainly written before 1100. The addition to Recension A of the passages attributed to the Keen would accordingly have been still earlier. The first of the two passages is inserted at the point when the invading sons of Mio have met Banava, one of the three Tuatha de Donan queens whose names become names of Ireland. It may be translated as follows. The book of Drimschnechte says that Avragan asked her her race. I am of the descendants of Adam, she said. To which race of the sons of Noah do you belong, he said. I am older than the sons of Noah, she said. I was on the peak of a mountain in the flood. Up to this summit, she said, did the wave of the flood come. Therefore, it is called Tul Twine, summit of a wave. But that, count above, that account above is strange. Then they chant spells against her and banish her from them. This passage undertakes to report the testimony of the Keen, not to be a verbatim extract from it. And so it is not surprising to find a generous number of Middle Irish forms. A petrified infix in adver, univerbation and weak inflection in kora irfwych, and augmented preterites used without the sense of the perfect in kora irfwych, robosa, and dodechith. At the same time, there are indications that the author was drawing on an old Irish source. Survival of the neuter is reflected in the interrogative kids in the article in Cossa, and the correct form of the class B infixed pronoun is preserved in Ada Arbanad. What I would like to call attention to in this brief account, the oddity of which attracted a protesting comment from the redactor, is the array of parallels that it affords to Echtra Honle. There, too, a strange woman is encountered on a hilltop on the summit of Ishnach and is asked concerning her background. She responds with a description suggestive of Christian conceptions of paradise, while Banava, in our passage, states that she is descended from Adam but is older than Noah. Both statements are compatible with a view for which there is evidence elsewhere in the literature that the people of the Shiva are a branch of humanity free from original sin. Presently, the woman in Echtrachonle is driven away by the king's druid. The expression used for the druid's action is Dokachin for, translated by Macon as he intoned over. Banava too is banished by the gales. 
and the word used for the spells that are chanted against her, literally over her, fwiri, is dihedla, derived from the same verb of which dokachin is the preterite. Clearly, the two accounts have a fair amount in common, and the circumstance that they appear to derive from the same milieu makes these parallels all the more intriguing. Banova is situated firmly, albeit in a fashion that is not wholly orthodox, within the framework of Christian sacred history. But there is nothing to suggest that she is an allegory of the church or that pious proselytizing plays any part in this episode's agenda. Rather, the account of her ancestry looks like an attempt to explain the existence in the tradition of an unaging female eponym of the land in a manner consonant with Christian belief. Analogous concerns, in my view, can be recognized in Echtra Conle. We can now consider the second of the two passages in which the Gales encounter Banava's sister, Eriu. The Book of Drimishnechta says that it is on sleeve mish that Eriu addressed them, and she formed great armies by magic, so that they were battling against them until their own druids and their poets chanted spells to them. They saw something. They were sods of bog and mountain, so that thence is sleeve mishe. Linguistically, we can here observe contrasting indications of date similar to those that we saw in the meeting with Banova. Again, there is the petrified infix in adver. Again, ro is used without the sense of a perfect in ro'agel, ro'dolov, korachansed. And we see univerbation in ro'agel and the adoption of weak inflection in ro'agel and Korachansad. Moreover, the independent pronoun Ied is used as a direct object. But there is also a trace of something older, the form Mara rather than Mora. As in the first passage, the word used for spells is Dihedla, and this time it is druids and poets who chant these spells, just as it is a druid who chants against the woman in Echtrachonle. And the effect of the chanting is also comparable. In Echtrachonle, the druid banishes the woman by rendering her imperceptible. Those who could only hear her voice can hear it no longer, while to Conle, who could also see her, she becomes invisible. Similarly, Eriu's army is overcome by changing the vision of the Gaels. They suddenly see that the armies that they have been fighting are not really armies at all. In both cases, supernatural women are defeated when druids take control of what mortals are experiencing. That a figure whose name reveals her to be Ireland in person 
should use her magic to make armies out of the uncultivated land itself is an arresting conception. Recalling the statement of the sorceresses Behile and Dinan in Kathmagyaturid that they will enchant the trees and the stones and the sods of the earth so that they will be a host under arms. The doctrine that the three eponymous queens resisted the gales with force rather than meeting them peacefully, as they do in the most familiar Yaragawala account, is indicated in other sources as well. Thus, in Mailvora Ofna's poem, Khan Amunavas Nangaival, from the later 9th century, there is reference to Banava from Sleeve Mish with her hosts. And recension B of Lavargavala relates that when Banava encountered the invaders, it was with her hosts of wizardry and witchcraft along with her. Lever Bratnach, in a passage to which nothing in its source text, Historia Bretonum, corresponds, states that there were three goddesses ruling over Ireland then, Fodla, Banava, Eriu, the sons of Mio, won three battles against them. The same idea may also lie behind the line Rerig Erin Ilar Nolov, ruled over Ireland of multitudes of enchantments, in the poem Sloan Shesh Avrigid Komuev by Orthanach or Koilavra, who died in 840. In light of the passage that we have just been considering, indeed, a possible translation would be Eriu of the hosts of enchanted appearances. The resemblances between Echtra Chonle and these two episodes in the Gaelic conquest of Ireland, which were evidently already attributed to Cian Dormashnachta in the 11th century, are sufficiently numerous that they must be taken into account in our efforts to interpret the former tale. This is not to deny that the author of Echtra was free to make as much use or as little use as he pleased of the traditions on which he drew. Indeed, I regard him as having been an individual of exceptional creativity. But our ability fully to appreciate that creativity will, to a great extent, depend on our understanding of those traditions. This paper is by no means the first attempt to use Kiendromeschnechte texts to shed light on one another. A notable exploration along these lines was James Carney's 1976 article, The Earliest Bran Material, in which he argued that one of the Loch Foyle colloquy texts, Imagulov in Druid Bran, August in a Ban author Fevel, preserves traces of an account of Bran's adventures that is older than that related in Imrev Bran. And he further proposed that this account served as the latter tale's point of departure. While in Imrev Bran, the protagonist is invited to cross the ocean to a paradisal other world by one of the immortal women who are its inhabitants, the earlier story, for which Carney proposed the title Echtravran, 
would have described Bran's attempt to seize the treasures guarded by women who dwelt beneath the waters of a spring, followed by a retaliatory deluge which engulfed Bran's kingdom and created what is now Loch Foyle. Echtra of Ran, in Carney's view, would have been entirely free of the Christian elements that are so prominent and so important in Imrav Bran. As he stated, Echtra of Ran supplied some background material and certain hints that were capable of a Christian application and development. But the two compositions were separated by the cultural chasm that divided pagan and monastic Ireland. The qualities of thought, imagination, and poetry found in Imrav Bran may be regarded as the exclusive contribution of the author. Although for my part, I regard Carney's Echtravran as having been just as much a product of monastic Ireland as Imrav Bran, I do agree with his reconstruction of the former's probable nature, and also with his assessment of its influence on the Imrav. I've written on these subjects elsewhere. On this occasion, I would like to call attention to a keen Dromashnechta text that exhibits a further parallel to Imrav Bran, one which I overlooked in my earlier attempt to document interrelationships within the Keen. This is the northern group composition, Forfes Fervolga. Forfes Fervolga consists of a brief narrative introduction, followed by several speeches in obscure diction. In his edition, Turneisen offered a translation of the opening section, but left the speeches untranslated. Largely because of their difficulty, the text, as Tornison observed, has been protected from modernization by incomprehensibility. Forfes Fervolga has remained virtually unstudied since Tornison wrote. The only detailed discussion of which I am aware, indeed, is a fine article by Tina Helmut, in which she uses references elsewhere in the literature in an endeavor to reconstruct the underlying story. This would have related how Cochulain crossed the sea to the land of the men of Folga, whom Forfes Fervolga also calls the men of the Isle of Man, the men of Fall, and Fovora, this last designation suggesting that they were supernatural entities. From some of the comparanda cited by Helmut, it is apparent that Cuchulain returned from this expedition with much plunder, cattle, treasure, and a king's daughter. For present purposes, I'm concerned only with the first few sentences, which do not present any serious textual difficulties. They run, the beginning of the siege of the men of Folga, that is, of the men of Man. It is that which was revealed to the Ulith from Evanvacha when the griffin brought the honey-sweet flower to them, and it is thereafter that Cuchulain went. This passage was presumably the inspiration for a scene 
in the curious late version of the story of Brendan's voyage, known as Dor Abstelded Neheren. This opens with the saints feasting in Clonard when they saw an incomparable huge flower coming to them as a sign of the land of promise. It is then that there arose excitement and discussion among them with regard to going in search of the land of the flower. Of relevance to the present inquiry is another parallel, this one at the opening of Imre of Bran. Bran awakes from a supernaturally induced sleep to find beside him a blossoming apple branch of silver. When he takes it back to his royal hall to show it to his subject kings, a mysterious woman appears and recites a poem describing the beauties of the other world from which the branch has come. When she departs, the branch springs from Bran's hand and vanishes with her. It is this which motivates him to set out next day in search of the paradise of which he has heard. The tale with which Imre of Bran has been most frequently compared is Echtrachonle, and indeed it is obvious that there is a close connection between the two texts. By the same token, it is easy to see why scholars have associated the apple branch taken away by an immortal woman in Imre of Bran with the perpetually replenished apple bestowed by an immortal woman in Echtrachonle, and I certainly consider such an association to be justified. On the other hand, it is important to recognize that these two supernatural objects have different functions in their respective narratives. The apple allows Conle to experience the inexhaustible abundance of the other world from which it comes, and also fills him with desire for the woman from whom he has received it. The branch functions merely as a premonitory sign, an enigmatic vision of beauty, which is only explained when another mysterious woman appears to Bran and his companions. The branch is a stimulus to departure elsewhere, whereas the apple changes the nature of existence here. In McCone's rather unsympathetic formulation, Conla's apple was a nourishing gift pointing the way to the inalienable possession of eternal bliss, whereas Bran's branch was a mere bauble on temporary loan, betokening an experience of paradise that would be neither profound nor permanent. Viewing this contrast from a somewhat different angle, I find it striking that it is just those aspects of the silver branch which do not correspond neatly with Conle's apple, which can most readily be compared with the flower in Forfes Fervolga. Both branch and flower are revealed as signs, not bestowed as gifts, and inspire a protagonist to go in search of a distant land. It is also noteworthy in this connection that Forfes Fervolga belongs to the same northern group of keen Dromosnechte texts, 
which provides us with evidence for a version of Brand's otherworld journey that was, like Cuchulain's journey, aggressive rather than harmonious. Instead of being a mere bauble on temporary loan, then, some at least of the branch's attributes suggest that it can be seen as a summons to adventure. In Forfus Thervalga, a flower is brought by a bird. By implication, it is not only something precious and desirable, but something from far away. The same narrative device appears in many traditions. Thus, it is used in the story of Tristan, who sets out for Ireland in search of Isolt when two swallows bring one of her golden hairs to Cornwall in their beaks. Similarly, in the Persian mystical epic, The Conference of the Birds, the quest for a kingdom beyond the world-encircling mountain of Gath is initiated when one of the feathers of a fabulous bird falls to earth in China. In Forfes Fervolga, the winged creature that brings the flower to Evan is a griffin. The griffin appears again associated with heroic voyaging in an early poem in praise of the Leinster dynastic ancestor Lavrith Lingshach, where he is called a griffin attacking unknown lands. That Ektra Vran involved the seizure of treasures kept by women beneath a spring was inferred by Carney from two of the quatrains of Imagalev in Druid Bran, in which the Druid remembers knowledge that had been revealed to him when he was in Bran's household. He says, my knowledge reaches a pure spring in which is the snare of a troop of hundreds of women, the treasures of the woman troop, which was shaped. It would be a great find for the man who would find it. For wonderful are the pure treasures which are beside Sruv Bran. It would ennoble a tuath, or more than two tuatha, that is, the equivalent of the hosts of the great world of science of kingship. A partial parallel for these elusive indications is afforded by a story which, in various versions, appears in Old Irish commentary to the legal treatise De Astav Hirt August Ligith. This describes how a woman named Doran, or the wife of a man named Doran, seized a magical vessel belonging to women of the sheath encountered beside a spring and or dwelling within a spring. The seizure of a treasure, the supernatural women, and the spring are all again present here. An account of a raid on a sheath involving the capture of a treasure kept in a spring also occurs at the conclusion of the tale Echtra Nera. Here it is the crown of the king of the sheath of Kruachan that is kept in a spring, but is then taken by the men of Connacht in the course of an armed attack. It is interesting to find a more benign variant of the theme in the Keen Corpus, 
in the mixed group tail scale mongoid. Here, Mongon sends an apprentice poet on an errand to the sheath of Lethed Isne to fetch a stone and some silver from a treasure chamber that are there, but also to fetch a weight of gold from the stream of the same place. The notion of sheathed treasures being kept under water was familiar to the author of this keen text, may serve as further indirect support for its having figured in Echtrevran. These remarks are in the nature of unfinished business, comments on things which I should have noticed when I was comparing the various Kindromeschnechte texts with one another more than two decades ago. Doubtless, there are further analogies and internal echoes which continue to escape me. I hope that this gathering of specimens, modest as it is, may serve as an indication of the insights that continue to be offered by the body of material to which 23N10 is such an important witness. Thanks very much. <laughs>